Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Mustful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Jay Weiner, co-author of the book, Professor Berman, The Last Lecture of Minnesota's Greatest Public Historian. Jay, thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. Jay Weiner spent most of his career as a Twin Cities-based journalist, first at the Star Tribune and later at MinPost, covering sports business issues, the Olympics, and eventually Minnesota politics. He went on to become the speechwriter for former University of Minnesota President Eric Kaler and now works as a communications manager for the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis. He is the author of Stadium Games, 50 Years of Big League Greed and Bush League Boondoggles, and This Is Not Florida, How Al Franken Won the Minnesota Senate Recount, which was nominated for a 2011 Minnesota Book Award. Jay, uh, I guess to start off, I, I wonder if you could classify for listeners uh, your, if you're the author, the co-author, you know, at reading this, it's written in the first person through Professor Berman's words. So how would you classify your participation in it? Well, I was the writer of the book, and I'll tell you why, and I can explain how the book happened, and that would um, further explain how it was written. Um, I, I didn't know high all that well as a reporter. And as you said, I was a reporter uh, at the Minneapolis Star Tribune um, and at MinPost, the website, for about 30 years. During the course of my career, I knew of High and he knew of me, mostly because we might appear on a, a Twin Cities public television show called Almanac uh, once in a while. But I never quoted him really in a story. And then um, about 10 years ago, a pharmacist here in the Twin Cities, a progressive guy who was always talking about single-payer health care and um, free college ed- education before it was uh, a popular topic. He and I and a sculptor here in town named Doug Freeman had an idea to build a monument or a gathering place, uh, a park to what they called the common man to, to celebrate the, the, the working class. And periodically they would go out to dinner and invite guests to uh, brainstorm about what this project, this center, this place would be. And because uh, I went to this pharmacist uh, and I went to this pharmacist, Thompson Gupta, the pharmacist, invited me to go to one of these dinners. And before long, I was going out maybe four to six times a year with Hai and Thompson Gupta and Doug Freeman, the sculptor. And uh, Hai would tell stories every time we went out to dinner. We drank martinis and we ate Italian food. And they would be the same stories all the time. And the way I describe it, be like going to a Bruce Springsteen concert. You you know what songs are coming, but you still want to be there uh, and dance to them. So on his 90th birthday, Hai um, invited me to to come to it. And he was sitting there in this noisy room. And I walked over to him. And I said, Hi, you know, has anybody ever recorded... Um, any of your stories at all. I had no ulterior motive. I had no idea I would write this book with him. And he said, no, nobody cares about my stories. And I said, well, let me come by your house one day soon, and I'll get down some of your stories about uh, former Governor Rudy Perpich here in Minnesota, about Hubert Humphrey, the former presidential candidate, about Paul Wellstone, the, the senator who was killed in a plane crash. And I said, fine. So a couple months later, actually, there was no urgency to it. I wandered over to his house, and lo and behold, uh, he handed over to me a, a three-ring binder, 
uh, a glue a glue binder, and in it were in fact interviews he had done with a political scientist from Long Beach State in California named Jack Stewart. They were heavily about his political life, early political life um, affiliated with uh, the Communist Party. And he explained to me that he and Jack Stewart could never get the book uh, together. Jack was an older man himself. They both had strong personalities. And he looked me in the eye and he said, what do you think? Can you help me? So I kind of hypnotized me. I don't know if you've ever been hypnotized by a kind of acute uh, 90-year-old roly-poly guy. Um, and I agreed uh, to help him w- with, with this book. And that would have been the spring of 2015. We put together an outline. Uh, we filed for his Freedom of Information Act um, files from the FBI. Uh, we talked about what the book might look like, that it would be in first person. It would be his last uh, uh, lecture. With, he was famous for giving good ones at the University of Minnesota, where he was a professor for 40 years. Um, and we pretty much hashed out chapter one. Then I got sick and he died. And he died in November of 2015, so about five or six months after we started to work on this. During the course of the interviews that I had with Hai, and uh, really I spent maybe 20 to 30 hours with him, um, he told me that he was a super disorganized person, and that is true, he was, and that he never really kept anything. Um, No no records, didn't keep much of his uh, PhD work that he did at Columbia uh, in the 1950s. and. when I went to the University of Minnesota archives, for instance, there were just a bunch of three by five cards, four by six cards, and a lot of files, um, not many files, but some files that mostly said, oh, darn it, Berman, where's that chapter you promised us two years ago? Because I never really wrote that much and didn't get um, to deadlines much. And then when he died and the family began to clean out the house, they found 22 boxes of things of mine. So there I was with the old Jack Stewart interviews, the interviews I had done with High, the reviews of all of his TV appearances w- with him, and now 22 boxes of stuff. So that took me about a year to go through all of those because I had a job at the time. And, and, and so when you ask, was I the co-author? Well, yes, it's High's voice, it's High's words, it's words he said in interviews with me, with Jack Stewart, on television, on radio. Some of the book is uh, uh, material that he wrote that I put further into what I tried to think was his voice. So I would say 90 to 95% of these words are his, um, but I organized it. It is High's book. I like to say that it, that um, it would be, if, if you can put the book up to your ear, I hope that you can hear High's voice. And so uh, that's my answer to your question. <laughs> Wow. Well, I definitely think you accomplished that. You can. There's a distinct voice throughout the book, and I, I think that's probably highs. Uh, so it was really quite a long process, then, wasn't it? It, it was because um, again, we start, you know, somewhat casually in the spring of 2015, uh, thinking that he would be alive to help me write the book, and also, um, you know, that he would be approving it all. Then he dies in that late latter part of 2015. The the family clears out the house in 2016. I get those documents late in 2016. It takes me, you know, about a year, 10, 10 to 12 months till the end of 2017 to get it all done. And then during the course of 2018, um, 
the book is edited in the University of Minnesota Press, which does a great job. Uh, you know, had some other uh, books on their spring calendar that year, so they pushed it to the fall. And finally, the book came out uh, last November of, uh, of 20, 2019. Well, it must feel pretty good to, to get that, that project finally out there. It did. You know, what's sort of interesting, and maybe people who are listening who have written books of their own um, can relate to this. As you mentioned, I've written two, two other books. One about one was a social history of stadiums here in the Twin Cities. And in the 90s and the early 2000s, we were really ground zero for uh, sports finance debates about public public financing. But it was a debate that went back in, into the 1950s. That was based on almost all the reporting that I did uh, for the Star Tribune, where I covered sports finance issues for about 15 years. And my second book about the Frank and Al Frank and Norm Coleman recount of 2008 and 2009 was based on reporting I did for MinPost, the, of the, uh, of the website here. And those books were truly mine. I mean, I, I felt uh, great ownership with, with those. This book, I wanted to make sure it was highs. It was not only for all of the students that he had um, taught over his 40 years, which are thousands, it was for his family. Um, and so in some ways, yes, it felt great to get it done. I felt a sense of accomplishment, as all people do who write books. Um, but I wanted to make sure that this was High's book also. So there's a little bit of a distance of, of, uh, of connection to it to a certain extent. Because every time I sat down to write and put it together, I was trying to think, how would High say this and would High be, uh, be, uh, be happy with it? So. Uh, it was a great feeling of accomplishment, just a little bit different feeling. So I'm curious, um, what was the response of Hai's uh, family? Um, they were uh, were pretty happy. So he's he's got a daughter and a son, and his wife is still alive. Um, she has her health has not been um, in uh, uh, been great recently. Her name is uh, is Betty, uh, but. Uh, to go back, the night of High's funeral, Betty came up to me in his house um, where people had gathered, and she was already beginning to lose uh, her memory a bit, but she knew who I was. But she came, she found me amidst all these people who were there, and kind of wagged her finger at me and said, "You're gonna you're gonna finish that book, aren't you?" And I I, I said to myself, "Geez, now I really do have to finish it." Uh, that was November of, uh, of 2015. Uh, I heard from Ruth, his his daughter, who is actually an editor in California, and uh, she made my day, my week, my month when she read the advance. We we did as a courtesy send them the uh, advance copy of the book. They did not have any uh, right to edit anything at all. Um, we did ask if they saw any mistakes at all, uh, but she said it felt like she was sitting in the living room of their house with, with her father. So I felt, you know, quite good about that, that I had succeeded in, uh, in, in uh, providing the voice of, of, you know, of people who, who knew him. Um, and that's all that I heard. I heard, uh, I got a thank you from his son, um, but I really haven't heard that much from them other than um, I know that they were fine with it. And one of the guidelines, and I didn't have many guidelines, um, about the book was not to write about his family, um, that it was supposed to be a political, you know, it's not a biography, an autobiography, but mostly about his life in politics and in higher ed. 
in the final chapter, I do write a little bit uh, about his family because I learned about it mostly um, after his death. He did have another daughter who had died, and he did talk briefly about that. Um, so, in general, the family was happy with it. I, the first, when I first got my first copy of the book, I went to see Betty in her uh, uh, care uh, center, and she was uh, quite happy to, you know, to, to hold the book. So again, um, even if you don't sell a million books like Michelle Obama or Stephen King or something like that, um, there is uh, some satisfaction when you know that people care about what's written. Well, I'm really glad to hear that, and and. Uh... Yeah, I can say that um, it's definitely sounds like an autobiography written by High Berman. So even though I did not know him, uh, I'm going to ask you uh, quite a challenging question. Uh, so High Berman lived for over 90 years and he had quite a few experiences with the politics, uh, social climate of the time. I'm wondering if you can just put his life within its historical context. Well, um, High's life was uh, a period, was, it was a series of transitions. And so to put it in a historical context is to put it into a, a collection of contexts, if, if, if I can. Um, one is his early years, um, which is the context of a immigrant, um, communist, Jewish milieu of New York in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And he uh, was the son of Polish immigrants, the son of union activists. Um, his father was so active and so progressive and left-wing in the Amalgamating Clothing Workers Union that he was kicked out of the union. Uh, his, his, he claimed and his mother claimed that she was more progressive than her husband, which suggested that she would have been kicked out of the union also. But this was a period of time in New York in that, you know, early to uh, moving up into the war years of um, a very progressive um, left-wing Jewish uh, academic education-focused um, community that was affiliated in many ways from his childhood on through his teenage years and then his early years of college uh, with, uh, with the Communist Party. So that, that's the first historic uh, his, 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 his context there. Um, certainly anti-fascist to the extent that, you know, I was in the army and uh, he didn't fight in the war, uh, but uh, was drafted. And uh, so, so there was that. Then in the 1950s, as he got out of the army um, and got his Ph.D. and began to teach, um, he was in that period of time historically where there was a realization that the Soviet Union uh, was not the um, nirvana that he and other uh, young activists thought that it was in those early years, the 20s and the 30s. I became a, a devoted um, FDR New Dealer by now it's the 50s and that's over, but he became a Democrat as opposed to um, a, a seemingly member of the Communist Party, although he claims that he was not a member of the party and there's no indication um, in his FBI files that, that he was. He was certainly uh, affiliated with it. Um, so in that context, when others uh, on the left were beginning to become disillusioned with uh, uh, the Communist Party, um, I was too. And then he moved here. 
I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota, and we moved to the University uh, of Minnesota. And the historic context there was the Democratic split of, around the 1960s of the anti-Vietnam War Democrats and those who were supportive of the Kennedy-Johnson strategy on Vietnam. I was to the left of that. And this is why early on, he didn't support Hubert Humphrey, but rather supported Eugene McCarthy in the 1968 um, election. Um, and he was also part of historically in higher education, uh, a period of time of uh, multiculturalism and a big supporter and even an advocate for and a builder here at the University of Minnesota of programs like women's studies, Hispanic studies, African-American studies, uh, et cetera. As time moved on, and now we're getting to another context and, and tra transition, and this is a, a different kind of transition, I was very open and innovative um, on uh, uh, you know, public history and being accessible to, uh, to the average person. And so he took great advantage of television and radio. Now, if, if you were younger, I'm sure he would have had a very active Twitter account um, he did. He did have a Facebook page, and before he died, but didn't have much on there. Um, but unlike many university professors and academics, he was not afraid to be in the public spotlight. Um, and so I think that that's a transition that really did him well and made him known as a, a public uh, uh, his, his historian here in in in, uh, in the Twin Cities. So the, when you ask about the historic context, I don't know if you meant what I just answered, but to me, those transitions in his life reflect and reinforce um, some of the trends in the in the country at that time. Yeah, you stated that very well. It's just, uh, you know, as I was reading it, it was just remarkable to try and imagine uh, what was like, life was like uh, during these transitions and everything that he, that he experienced. You know, he, um, he liked, if, if for for people who who met him, um, he was a at least when I met him, and he was in his eighties by the time I met him. Um, he was a cuddly, avuncular kind of guy who you could imagine um, at Thanksgiving, you know, uh, pinching your cheek um, and uh, giving you some advice and telling you stories. Um, but uh, if you see videos of him uh, in his prime, which would be in the 80s and 90s, and I have, you really see a, uh, a man in full, someone who can give a lecture while he's on television, you know, a, a mini lecture about the importance of higher education, um, the importance or the, the, the meaning of a Minnesota election in 1938 and how anti-Semitism might have driven the Republicans to, uh, to, to, to win that. The, the, the point being that uh, as cuddly as he was, he had a pretty good-sized ego, and he wanted to be in the middle of things. This is me now talking about how it's not him talking about him. Um, but witness the fact that um, he was able to affiliate with some pretty big personalities themselves. You know, he became an advisor to... Um, to Governor Rudy Perpich here in Minnesota, and Perpich had this big, um, uh, what would you call it? I mean, they called him Governor Goofy. You know, he had these big ideas. Some of them worked, like the Mall of America. Others didn't. 
He affiliated himself, I did, with Hubert Humphrey after Humphrey's defeat in, in 68 and became a, a, a friend, friend of his. He crossed paths with Paul Wellstone when Wellstone was still a professor at Carleton College here in, 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 in Minnesota because Perpich and Wellstone were spatting about an issue here in the state. He was in the middle of helping to hire the first woman Supreme Court Justice here in Minnesota, Rosalie Wall. He liked to be in the in the middle of things. He liked to be out there, and as humble and and cute as he seemed on television and on radio, um, he uh, he he was uh, you know substantially interested in being uh, out in front of people. And it, I, it could go back. I think it does go back to this feeling as a young person and his parents' feeling as a young person as an immigrant. Of being the other, and I I talked about that a lot of how uh, immigrants in his time and today um, never really feel as if they're part of the community and part of the culture. They need to prove themselves. And uh, there's something that I found in one of those 22 boxes that I write about in the last chapter of a picture of him with Governor Perpich. In the 1970s, so high at this point is in his late 50s, maybe early 60s, and it's a note to his mother. So I'm assuming that when his parents died, he cleaned out their house and got their boxes, and it says something like, "Look, Ma, I'm with the governor." So he was even bragging to his mother at age 50 about what he was doing, and maybe we all do that. I, I'm not sure, but um, there was a certain sense about high that he wasn't appreciated. Yeah. Enough, um, and uh, that's something that uh, I I took away uh, from reading his stuff and then talking with with him um, over that you know short period of time. Well, just having read your book, I can I can tell you that I I came to appreciate the influence he had on on this state and in this country. Um, the things that I didn't know about that he was a part of. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, he, uh, he he became, you know, I think today the term might be a thought leader. I don't know if that term has worn out uh, already. I know in the last couple of years, um, people use the term thought leader, and, and he was. Um, he was a thought leader um, uh, by not only uh, teaching literally thousands of students over the course of his 40 years through his appearances on local radio and TV, through his columns that he wrote for the St. Paul Pioneer Press for um, uh, a number of years, and then through his um, uh, elbowing in, as it were, um, to the lives of, of different in influential people. Um, uh, and then his ability, as he was a thought leader, to either get under their skin or to push them along the way. I think of two, two examples. One was with Perpich, who was his friend and confidant um, during a pretty infamous Hormel uh, meatpacker strike here in the 1990s. I think my dates are a little bit off. Um, but when Perpich called in the National Guard um, to uh, stop the strike, um, High wrote uh, an op-ed in, in the St. Paul Pioneer Press condemning him. And that really got under a uh, uh, the, the perfect skin. Um, another time that he was influential, and this is with the, on the other side of the aisle, 
was with Harold Sasson, um, the perennial presidential candidate who was the governor of Minnesota um, back in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and I uh, criticized Stassen for his role in that 1938 election when um, the Republican Party, um, in High's view, um, used anti-Semitism in order to beat Elmer Benson. And uh, the two of them, Stassen and Berman, went on to become friends because High wrote an article in 1976 condemning Stassen for not speaking out enough against the anti-Semitism of the Republicans. Stassen called him and complained and said that he had done some work around that. I said that was BS. They became friends. And when Stassen died, before he died, obviously, he asked Hai to um, deliver the eulogy um, at his funeral. Um, so he had influence in, in, that, in that way in speaking, you know, so-called truth to power and in making it public. And uh, when I spoke a little bit back about him feeling underappreciated, perhaps, um, in academic circles, and I'm guessing that some people who listen to your podcasts are in the academic circles, um, I thought, and I believe it's true, that um, being so public and translating history for the, the citizenry was looked down upon. That, um, you know, the way to succeed in academia, in his view, and actually in mine, is sometimes to write articles in esoteric journals for a hundred people in a language that no one truly understands other than those, you know, few people who, who read it. He thought that was a waste of time. Um, and so he also felt that because of his public persona, he was often shunned by some people, uh, in the academic world. Uh, because he wasn't, uh, you know, scholarly enough. He he was a great scholar when he did scholarship, um, but he didn't write or publish as much as some of his colleagues did. And he was more of an activist, not only on campus and helping students and being in faculty governance, um, but more of an activist in the way that he um, helped to form opinions, uh, you know, in the Twin Cities and across the state of uh, Minnesota. Uh, I, you mentioned um, anti-Semitism, and I was born in, in 1982, and so um, for some of our younger listeners, it might come as a surprise, because it did to me, the, the type of anti-Semitism that, that Berman faced, especially when he came to Minnesota in the 1960s. Uh, can you talk about the anti-Semitism that he faced and how it shaped his career? Yeah, um, well, as it goes to the Twin Cities, and I'm Looking in my index here to get the exact date, there was a, a quite a, um, a, uh, a famous article called Minneapolis, the Curious Twin, which was written by Kerry McWilliams, the, uh, the uh, commentator of those days. And that was written in uh, 1946. And in 1946, um, McWilliams exposed the anti-Semitism in Minneapolis, not in St. Paul, but mostly in the city uh, of Minneapolis. These are times when um, Jews couldn't buy homes in certain areas, when the AAA, the you know the uh, American Automobile Association, wouldn't allow uh, Jews to join uh, the AAA here in Minneapolis, even though the president of AAA in St. Paul was Jewish. Um, it was uh, Min Min Minneapolis 
Holocaust was really known as a, you know, hotbed, cold bed uh, of anti-Semitism, while St. Paul was more diverse, more Catholic, um, and just more open to um, uh, differences. So um, when High was looking to get a job, and then finally landed one here in Minnesota, his friends and mentors in New York, including John Hope Franklin, said to him and others, um, you are walking into an anti-Semitic uh, minefield, not only in that community, but at the University uh, of Minnesota, which uh, had had very few Jewish uh, historians um, uh, on, the, on the faculty. I was very sensitive. His radar, his, his antennae, I guess you would say, were up around, were all around that, because having grown up in New York, although he grew up in this Jewish mil milieu, he was aware of uh, anti-Semitism, of course, and then his disillusionment with uh, with the Soviet Union had really focused him on the fact that entire societies uh, can be uh, anti-Semitic uh, uh, anti to the extent where people are being killed. Um, and then, of course, um, World War II occurred, and uh, uh, he was just uh, super sensitive to that. So once he gets here, though, um, he's in a period of time where the University of Minnesota is beginning to break down some of the barriers to the to the faculty. Um, but he um, he becomes um, interested in the election that I mentioned that Harold Stassen wins, which is the 1938 gubernatorial election. And he writes about that in a, quite a scholarly piece. And then he also writes a pamphlet about uh, the history of Judaism and Jews here in, in the States. Um, and he becomes uh, sort of the Jewish scholar here um, uh, in Minnesota, which does not have a large Jewish community, but the Twin Cities has a, you know, a sizable one and, and, uh, uh, and one that uh, is influential here in, uh, in the Twin Cities now. And uh, it's, it's broken down, I, I, would, I would say, so that um, we're certainly not as anti-Semitic as we were uh, in the 19, in the, uh, yeah, in, in the 40s. Um, so, you know, growing up Jewish in America in the 20s, 30s, and 40s throughout the war years, my parents um, were of his age and of that period of time. Um, Anti-Semitism was a reality, um, and people had to, uh, uh, you know, work through it um, and uh, achieve achieve what they did Definitely, I got the feeling that he's sort of ahead of his time in his his way of thinking. Um, would you agree with that? I think so. You know, his we haven't even gotten to this point, but I mean, his major academic focus was labor history, and uh, he was um, not a pioneer, but he was among the first wave of young historians who focused on working people. Um, as, as he wrote later, you know, uh, through in, seeing history through the eyes of the vanquished and not the victor. Um, and so 
that his, his, you know, his DNA was this immigrant kid of working parents, so uh, working class parents. So he was interested in the history of the clothing workers' unions, the you know the struggles of the strikes, the trucker strikes of 1934, I think it was, um, and some others. Uh, his PhD was about um, clothing workers. Um, so he was a, a labor historian. So uh, you know, sort of the the, the common person. And then when the 1960s came and there was revolution with a small R uh, for women and um, people of color, um, he uh, it, it plugged right into high sensibilities and also his support for students in, uh, in general. And in some ways, uh, I think his real love for the University uh, of Minnesota, he was a tremendous citizen uh, of the university as, as left-wing as, as he was and as um, uh, much of a dissident as he was on many things. He was a real um, uh, advocate for uh, for the U. Um, and in, in that advocacy, I think that he saw that students wanted and the university needed um, uh, the kinds of um, multicultural programs that he um, supported, and he supported um, what he called the free university, where there were classes of, that would would be extremely non-traditional. He thought that that was the way that you know that things should go. Um, so he he was he was ahead of his time, but he was um, it, it's on the same um, thread of, of of his life. You know, you asked about putting it into uh, historic context. It, I think that if you follow High Berman's life along the the, uh, the line from the, his birth in 1925 until his death in 2015, you see that he was just part of um, the the dominant trends of of that period, um, with the exception maybe of the, the, the mid 50s to the early 60s, a five to seven year period where he was really committed to just getting a darn job having his kids born, making sure his spouse was happy, the things that we all do when we're in our kind of 30s. Um, but then once he landed here, um, he really began to uh, uh, to to flourish and to commit himself to a, you know, a, a career that, that made a mark. Mm-hmm. Well, talk a little bit more about landing here. He, he was teaching in Michigan very briefly before he was offered the position at the U. And then thereafter, I think he said he had uh, offered a position in California. And then, of course, he traveled a lot uh, thereafter. Why did he choose Minnesota and why did he choose to stay? Well, he chose Minnesota because he didn't like Michigan. (laughs) Um, He chose Minnesota because David Noble, who was another great historian, a cultural historian here uh, at the university, had, had befriended him at uh, academic conferences, and Noble recruited him here. And the story that um, he tells in in the book is that um, after having been in New York his entire life, uh, along with his wife, Betty, um, he got this great job offer uh, to Michigan State, finally, um, at a, you know, a large research university that would probably have tenure track um, uh, possibilities. Um, but they were quite cultural in New York. They went to opera, they went to jazz, they went to art museums, they had a great apartment. 
And Betty in particular was not enamored with East Lansing, which at that point she viewed and high viewed as kind of a Cal school, um, C-O-W. They lived near the football stadium. People got rowdy on weekends. And uh, there were no sidewalks uh, where, where they lived. So when High was invited here for a guest lecture, and he had no idea that it was really a recruiting trip, um, it soon turned into an offer to jump to Minnesota just six months or so after he had gotten the job at Michigan State. He called Betty and told her about this job offer, and she asked one question, and that was, are there sidewalks in Minnesota? Uh, High said, there are sidewalks. She said, take the job. So that's how he got here. Um, his his, uh, his stint at Berkeley was a visiting stint, and yes, he could have stayed, or so he says, but he would, had been established here. He had a great gig here. He was already a an activist, you know, an, an active member of the community. He had access to the presidents uh, of the university. Uh, he became, within a five or six year period, a remarkable historian of the state itself, an almost encyclopedic about some key um, historic um, moments here in the state, particularly around labor history uh, 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 and Jewish Jewish history, Iron Range history, which is you know um, the northern part of of the state. So he he really began to develop a life here, and by that point, his children um, were in school. Um, and uh, he also had another job offer, and I actually am forgetting if I if we've written this. Um, at one point, to go back to New York to be the head of, I believe it was the Jewish Historical Association or some pretty prominent um, New York. Yes. Case. Yeah, you did. You did write about yeah. that, or he did. Think, think, think tank, and uh, he he turned that down. Um, and I, I've always and I've seen some of the letters there. We don't go into it much. But he would have gotten a pretty sizable raise in those days, but he just decided to stay here. Um, uh, in academia. So why did he stay? Um, like a lot of us do, he had a great job. He was well respected. His family uh, had settled in. They had a beautiful house about a block from the Mississippi uh, River uh, in South Minneapolis. And uh, uh, he just had a, you know, a, a, a great career here. So a lot of the book just details High's life. It doesn't really get into uh, too much about his perspectives as a historian until later in the book. And there's one thing that I, I would like to read that I just found remarkable. It was almost moving how eloquent it was. So if you just bear with me uh, for a moment. I'd like to read a quote from from the book. Sure. We may see Indians driven from their homes and told by a chorus of well-meaning voices that nowhere in the future is there a place for their holy beliefs and cherished customs, that to survive they must deny their identity and become white men. We may see immigrants torn between hope for the new world and homesickness for the old, watching their children slowly weaned from the old ways and the old language to become foreigners under their very roofs. We will see towns dead or dying along, the, along with hopes that built them when the railroad located elsewhere. We will see farmers driven under by drought or debt or grasshoppers packing up their very few belongings and sadly moving on. We will see game destroyed, forests leveled, hillsides eroded, and streams polluted by careless greed. And inevitably, the question will arise. 
what have we now and is it worth the cost? I just thought that was incredibly profound. Um, wh- when did he utter that or, or what, what do you think of that? Well, I'm looking to, to see um, where we have that in, in included in it. And I'm, I'm guessing, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's towards, it's towards the end. And, um, these, I'm, I believe that he said this, um, is, is this in the chapter of the perfect speech or is this in, can, can you tell me what, what, what page you're on? Sure. Um, it is page 150 in your, in the conclusion history through the eyes of the vanquished. Okay. So now exactly. So this is, uh, in high's view, uh, not only is it a speech about history, but it's a historic speech. Um, Rudy Perfect was the governor. High was in his kitchen cabinet. High um, had met Rudy um, in about 1961-62 um, um, in the first big project that he did at the university, which was to go up to the Iron Range in Minnesota and to Im- embed himself, immerse himself in the immigrant experience. They went on to become friends and colleagues, and then uh, Perpich asked him to be his almost unofficial chief of staff. And High encouraged Rudy Perpich to to give a speech about history and the importance of history. Um, And uh, Perpich agreed to it. Even though Perpich delivered the speech, High, High wrote the speech. And those words, while uttered by Perpich, were really from the High's heart, but he and Rudy had very similar backgrounds in the fact that Perpich was the um, son of immigrants, working-class immigrants. His father, Anton, like uh, High's father, David, was affiliated with the Communist Party. And those words that, that, that you read, um, you know, uh, they, they, they speak to and they, they plug into what we've been talking about um, before, that is, High's understanding, his his sensibilities, his affection for understanding what the other feels like, whether they be American Indians uh, or immigrants uh, or uh, or uh, or working people, and those words are about as you know, I'm glad you pointed them out are about as well written as High wrote, and and so because he really felt it. Um, he was not a great writer um, in his academic stuff, and there's there's some things that he wrote that were so didactic and academic. I think he was just trying to prove that he was one of the clubs sometimes. Um, but I'm glad that you were moved by it. I think that entire speech, which uh, we reprint almost in full, I did it to take some some uh, stuff out, um, is, um, is is a highlight. There's another part of the book where High talks about teaching. And that's part of an interview he gave in 1992 uh, on public uh, TV here, and his belief that he was there to teach critical thinking more than the facts uh, of history. Um, Those are, to me, the the highlight lessons um, that um, we offer in the the book. So, So thanks for reading that. Yeah, yeah, and I think he he mentions that he's critical of of online learning, which is becoming more and more prevalent. And he had mentioned something about human interaction being necessary to teach and to learn. Yeah, and uh, he uh, 
he was a strong um, a believer in that, and his his academic hero was a guy named Salo Baron, professor at Columbia, uh, perhaps best known for being the uh, historian who testified at the war crimes trial against Adolf Eichmann in Israel uh, after World War II. And um, when I first saw Baron give a lecture, um, the man used no notes at all. This is a guy, Salo Baron, who wrote a 19-volume history of the Jewish people, and it only got up to the year 1650. So uh, this was a detail-oriented person. But the other thing that Barron did was bring students over to his house to um, have dinner um, and uh, expound on uh, the lectures that he he gave. And so uh, I was was a high-touch kind of... um, Professor, even as um, he used electronics like TV uh, and radio um, to translate his history for you know for everyone else. Well, there are so many stories in this that I think we could uh, go on forever, but I think we'll have to let readers um, page through it themselves. Uh, but before we end, uh, and certainly I think you've proven this already, but. Your, your subtitle, The Last Lecture of Minnesota's Greatest Public Historian. What? Why do you say he's Minnesota's greatest public historian? Um, because uh, there's been no one else um, in recent memory who has played the role of talking to the public about the role of history, uh, the background that current events has against that history um, than than High Berman um, on the Almanac TV show, which is among the highest rated public TV shows, um, uh, 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 local public TV shows in the country. He was a guest more than anyone else about a uh, hundred times on public radio, uh, on TV, and on the commercial channels. I was there on election nights, and he didn't just talk about the results of the election. He would say, do you remember in 1944, do you remember that the 1948 uh, convention had this? And he, he was always placing current events uh, in, in context. You know, we have had, and we have today, some local pundits, I would say, political science pundits, who try to put um, into political perspective some events that, that, that are happening, but we don't have anyone who brings the historical background um, that High did. And of course, some of that had to do with the fact that he lived for such a, uh, a long time as well. And we also say it because um, we believe it. We believe that he was Minnesota's greatest public historian. And so far, no one's disputed it. So it's, it's my story and we're sticking to it. Okay. Well, I, I'm definitely convinced after reading the book. <laughs> so, uh, what, what, how about what are you working on now? Well, as you mentioned, I'm uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. I've been there for a couple of years, and I'm going to be uh, actually uh, retiring or uh, deinstitutionalizing, as I call it, um, uh, towards the middle of this year. And uh, I've got a couple other book projects that I'm working on, and when they come out. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, one is uh, a little bit of a memoir of some experiences that, that I've had. Another one is a children's book that I would like to do. Um, 
so uh, I've got some other books in the works, and I look forward to having um, the time to, 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 to do all that. Well, excellent. Congratulations on your upcoming um, retirement, and I'll, I'll look forward to those projects. Great. Well, I really appreciate you uh, having me on this to talk about Hyperman and our book. Of course. Uh, where can listeners get a copy of the book? Well, they're in all uh, the bookstores, certainly in the Twin Cities. They're on Amazon. Uh, University of Minnesota Press um, has it on their website, Professor Berman, the last lecture of Minnesota's greatest public historians. You know, I've done um, book events um, throughout the, the Twin Cities at a couple bookstores, um, and uh, pretty much every bookstore in town um, has it. Certainly the, uh, the, campus, the campus bookstore has it as well at the University of Minnesota. Great. I've been talking with Jay I'm sorry. I've been talking with Jay Weiner, um, co-author of the book, Professor Berman, The Last Lecture of Minnesota's Greatest Public Historian. Jay, thank you so much. Great. Thanks for having me.